is going on. Uh, one thing that's going on is an event coming up this Wednesday evening here in Berkeley. Mark Danner will be speaking at an event sponsored by KPFA. He is the author of a brand new book called Spiral, Trapped in the Forever War. He's talking about the forever war, which we are trapped in, obviously. It's Wednesday night. He is speaking. That's the 13th, 7.30 p.m. at the Hillside Club here in Berkeley at 2286 Cedar. Uh, you can get tickets at brownpapertickets.com or at kpfa.org or your favorite bookstore. And it is a relatively small venue, so you better jump on it. I talked about Baldock. He said there's still a few tickets available. So, again, that's this Wednesday night, Mark Danner in Berkeley. We're going to continue on uh, this same uh, uh, topic uh, this time with Isaiah Poole. Isaiah has been with us uh, several times before. He's director of online communications for the Campaign for America's Future. He lives and works in the Washington, D.C. area, and he's editor and blogs at ourfuture.org. Isaiah Poole, welcome back to the Sunday Show. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah, I wish it was pleasant out there. It's uh, there's not a lot of pleasure in the in the world right now. Not a lot of pleasure in the world right now, but I'm glad we're talking about it. Good. So uh, you're in Washington. I called you. You probably didn't hear me say this as a Washington operative. That sounds. You make that, uh, yeah, that's so sorted. I, the operative is. So... <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, well, uh, you know where the bodies are buried there. I, I put it that way. If that's not even more unpleasant sounding. <laughs> uh, how is... I, just point them, I just point them out to people. So okay, they can okay. look and stare and gawk. Okay. Well, how is Washington handling all of this? Well, I, you know, as you know, as I often say, there are two Washingtons. There is the political Washington and then what I call the real Washington, which is the the uh, 700,000 of us who, who live and work here every day and who are just normal people uh, struggling with these issues. And, I, and let me talk about the real Washington first, because there have been a a series of um, memorials here in D.C. and events here in D.C. Um, to uh, support the officers as well as to, in Dallas and to support the um, the black men who were also killed in, in, in St. Paul and um, in Baton Rouge. Um, I just came from a Sunday service where uh, the gospel reading was about the Good Samaritan. I think most, many of you are familiar with this, the, you know, as, you know, a person was assaulted on the side of the road and it, it the, you know, the authorities, the priests, the, the exalted folks who walked by did nothing to help this man, but it was the Samaritan, the outcast, who came in to help and give support. Um, and, um, the sermon in my church used that as a way of talking about all of the things that have happened this week and also the question of who is my neighbor um, which is a real interesting um, question uh, because 
the Black Lives Matter activists who organized that demonstration in Dallas were acknowledging very prominently and very loudly and very forcefully that we consider the police officers who are out there every day doing the difficult work of trying to keep communities safe and keep people safe as neighbors. This is not, therefore, an anti-police movement. I mean, there are, uh, there are stray voices who are anti-police, generally. We are not anti-police. We are anti-police abuse of authority. We are anti-police profiling. We are anti-police racism. We are anti-policing which creates distrust between uh, law enforcement and the community rather than the trust that is necessary to keep a community safe. So, you know, we have been engaging in these kinds of discussions to um, across racial lines to talk about what it means to for both uh, black people to be able to walk uh, the streets safely and to when they encounter the police to um, have the confidence that they'll be treated with dignity and fairness. And we have been having conversations about how do we make sure that we have a police force that also feels as if they can do their job and do their job with integrity. Um, now, is the political Washington uh, coming to the level of maturity that, uh, that it can have the same kinds of conversations and therefore enact um, uh, uh, policies and, and help us move forward uh, on this? That's, that's an open question. Well, the political Washington seems uh, very, what can I say, tied in knots. And the campaign doesn't seem to provide any clarity. I think they did one good thing recently, uh, which was uh, this past week to pass legislation uh, to provide for drug treatment for people. Um, this is a Congress that essentially has done nothing uh, for the last two years except bad things. Uh, and so... It's one token good thing that they provided some. I guess they didn't even provide the money. That's what the Democrats complained about. They yeah, said that, that was that was the yeah that was. That they was didn't even the provide the money for this. Senate. Tell us more. Well, yeah, I mean there 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 have been a few instances like uh, of of this happening where where um, Republicans put forward what they say is a compromise, which in this case was. Okay, you know, we, we, you know, first of all, this is, a, it to me, is, is an example of how things aren't dealt with properly until they are, uh, until they affect white people. And I'm sorry to say it that way, but I, I remember the drug epidemics of the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s. 
And the response to those drug epidemics uh, for 30 years when they hit African-American communities and inner-city communities was throw a bunch of police at the situation, throw a bunch of very punitive laws at the situation, do not fund drug treatment, do not provide treatment on demand. Instead, lock people up um, for for using and for and, – and, of course, we got the three strikes you're out laws and all of that stuff that's out of there. Now we, we have an opioid epidemic that is permeating uh, Appalachia, other Rust Belt communities, other poor white communities, and it's taking – such a toll that white um, longevity, white um, uh, lifespan is actually declining in a lot of these counties. And so Congress is acting, and Congress should act. But even in that situation, you know, there was, I, I, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm not rem remembering the specifics, but... Um, Generally, what happens in the way, way Republicans and Congress have been operating lately is that they'll, they'll, they'll say, okay, we recognize that this is a problem, but we're going to have to rob Peter in order to pay for it. Peter, by the way, is usually never a wealthy, the owner of a wealthy corporation or the wealthy corporation itself. So we never talk about repealing a um, tax break for a corporation in order to cover the cost of something. This is what happened with Zika, the Zika virus uh, funding, which which never happened because the the idea was not to burden wealthy people with the cost of drug treatment or Zika but instead burden some other program. I think in Zika, was, I believe it was women's health care. Really? Um, they were going to take the money from women's health care to fund research into combating Zika? Yeah. Ooh. These people are more depraved than most of us imagined, I guess. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, a lot of it has this anti-Planned Parenthood um, uh uh, mindset, um, but to get back to to the core of what you're what you're talking about, you know, there there is. I, I think your fundamental where we started with this was what is the capacity of Congress to actually do something about this. Part of what comes to mind is what happened on the House floor just a few uh, weeks ago, just before they went on uh, July 4th break. And there was the sit-in in the House. Um, House Democrats basically took the floor and said, we're not going to move until we are, get a vote on a gun control measure. They didn't say that the vote had to win. They just said, we just want a vote, because the um, House Republicans wouldn't even allow some of the measures that were voted on in the Senate to come to the floor of the House. 
so they felt they had to just sit down and stage a sit-in on the House floor. Now, Paul, uh, Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, initially promised, well, okay, you'll get some sort of vote on a, on a bill. We will allow that to happen. And then the House Freedom Caucus, which is this tiny group of ultra, ultra conservatives, said, oh, no, you don't, Mr. Ryan. And Mr. Ryan caved. So I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm wondering whether the thing to do now is to have another sit-in. And so my Democrats and say, um, you know, there will be no more business as usual until we get some of these issues resolved. Well, it would just because, you know, part of the issue there is there are too many guns on the street. The guy who shot this co- the, the the five cops in, in uh, who killed the five cops in Dallas had you know a semi-automatic uh, weapon plus other you know ammunition and so forth um, and was mentally unstable based on the evidence that we we're seeing. So there's a fundamental you know nobody I don't think should have those kinds of weapons on the street. Certainly he should not have. It's 18 minutes after 10 in the a.m. here on the Sunday show on KPFA. My guest is Isaiah Poole, and we're talking about all of these events. We will open the phones in about 20 minutes at 1-800-958-9008, the Sunday show here on KPFA. Uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, you know, I am unfortunately a little fixated about the campaign and the election and something that came to my mind that I was actually fairly embarrassed uh, after the horrible events in Dallas and, uh, and the horrible events uh, in St. Paul and, and uh, Baton Rouge was, uh, does Donald Trump reap an advantage out of all of this? And I guess the reason I'm embarrassed about it is, during a tragedy, why am I thinking about Donald Trump? But uh, I... I you, the guy exists, you know, he is here. We've got to deal with this. Uh, can you comment? Well, first of all, I think we need to deal with Donald Trump's uh, selective outrage. Um, he did not post a tweet about the Baton Rouge or St. Paul shootings of black men by police. Within hours within less than 12 hours after the Dallas uh, shooting of police officers uh, he posted a tweet that made vague reference to um, horrible events I, I don't remember the exact language but it was a, it was a it was a rather broadly worded tweet um, and then he issued a statement which, uh, I'm sure was crafted by uh, peop- the people that he's brought on to sort of kind of rein him in a little bit. And it was a measured statement, unusually measured by Trump standards, um, that talked, but, you know, talked about, you know, the need for law and order 
you know, the use of that law and order phrase. And then there was talk about racial divisions. And I could not help but look at that statement and say, he still does not get it, and he refuses to get it. Um, I can appreciate that he is trying, he seems to be trying hard, or someone in his campaign is trying very hard to not throw more fuel onto the fire. And yet, he cannot name uh, the problem of institutional racism in the police. He can name uh, law and order as an issue he's concerned about. But he cannot name um, police brutality and police abuse of power and institutional racism in the police uh, departments that need to be rooted out. He cannot name that as a problem. Um, does that help him among some people? Yes, to the extent to which we have a faction in the American public um, that was willing to buy into the narrative that was put forward by the Texas lieutenant governor that uh, the shooting of the black uh, the shooting of the the police officers in Dallas was a byproduct of Black Lives Matter activism. To the extent to which your people will buy that, yes, it will help. Of course, it's a false narrative, but, you know, um, uh, unfortunately, we, we live in a country right now where lies have a lot of power. Well, I mean, Donald Trump, uh, this past week, uh, I believe it was the same day that uh, FBI Director Comey uh, uh, announced that he was not going to prosecute Hillary Clinton or bring charges against Hillary Clinton, uh, uh, but he still pilloried Hillary uh, for her use of the private server for her emails. Uh, Donald, instead of jumping on board to pillory Hillary, uh, started talking about how Saddam Hussein in Iraq uh, was... Uh, was a terrorist fighter and had the right idea. He didn't read the terrorists their rights before he killed them. He just killed them. Uh, uh, he was like so off message and so weird. I mean, there are people on the left, including myself, that think Saddam Hussein was a horrible man, but there was no grounds for uh, going to war with him. Um, but I hardly would think that extolling the virtues of Saddam Hussein's handling of terrorism is something that anybody in their right mind would start articulating during a campaign for the presidency. You, you are right about that. Um, and yet you have guys like Newt Gingrich who are willing to, you know, uh, follow him around like puppy dogs. I mean, I don't get that at all, but that's a thing and that's happening and you know people who you you know uh newt is a guy who you know we you know i think is would be be a train wreck if he got anywhere near authority a government authority ever again um well he was but, speaker of the house he was a train wreck then well exactly 
But, you know, I would expect him to at least have a level of intelligence to know that, um, you know, being around a man like Donald Trump would, is, is, is just totally wrong, but he doesn't. And, in fact, he said something uh, in one of his campaign uh, appearances with Trump last week was certainly sent chills down my spine, and that which had to do with the need to discredit the media. Not just discredit false reporting about Donald Trump, but he said the words, you know, discrediting, discrediting the media is a core objective of this campaign. Um, which, in my mind, is the way you build a fascist dictatorship. One of the, one of the building blocks of a fascist dictatorship is to kneecap the fourth estate and to say to the public, nothing you read that, uh, that is counter to my message or anything you read that undermines my message is not credible. Don't believe it. Only believe what comes out of my mouth. Well, speaking of presidential candidates and uh, obfuscation, uh, I, had a ch I was watching the news hour. And Judy Woodruff, uh, the, the whole cast was dominated by the events of Dallas. But uh, early on in the cast, uh, they went to a live interview with Hillary Clinton. And, of course, the first question to Hillary was about Dallas and about Baton Rouge and uh, St. Paul as well. And she gave a reasonable answer to, she spoke to white people in this country. It's the first time I've heard a presidential candidate uh, direct his or her words toward white people and saying that our job is to confront racism, which I thought, yay, Hillary, thank you for saying that. Uh, in the meantime, that second question was about uh, the decision by FBI Director Comey to uh, not recommend indictments, but in the meantime to characterize her handling of emails and confidential or secret information uh, in a, a deplorable, incompetent, and, uh, 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 you know, fashion, put it that way. Yeah. Um, so she was, and then she, they've all gone through the differences. Uh, she said she uh, had just one uh, BlackBerry. Uh, Comey said she had three. She said she didn't have any uh, secret information on her file. He said she did. She had 103, and uh, she said that they passed on all the business-related emails uh, uh, to the Justice Department to go through. He said there were thousands that were not passed on. It went on like that. So, And then she gets her chance to answer, and I'm expecting her to uh, to say something that's, uh, that is more or less an apology for being wrong. It was not an apology. It was the most mind-boggling array of distractions and arguments of, about diplomacy and here and there and everywhere. And in the typical fashion of the news hour, there's no follow-up question saying, you didn't answer my question at all. Uh, uh, the woman was just... Uh, it reminded me very much of another news hour interview that Jim Laird did with Bill Clinton when he said, I did not have sex with that woman. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Jim Laird said, okay, on to the next topic. It was just like, how can Hillary just 
uh, Stonewall. Well, this is the thing that, you know, in a normal election year, um, Hillary would be toast uh, for this, even without an indictment. Uh, I thought one of the most effective portions of the um, hearing with Comey was when uh, one of the Republicans um, basically went point by point with Comey. And it was very succinct. Um, um, Hillary Clinton said that, you know, Hillary Clinton said X. And is that true? And Comey would say, no, it was actually Y. And there was like about a, eight or nine. That's what I was referring to, yeah. Yes. Um, and, you know, um, that was just devastating. Um and you know, I, I it, 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 it's uh, I, I agree with you that the way for Clinton to put that behind her, if there's any hope of putting that behind her, is for her to simply say, um, stop making the excuses, stop saying that other what, stop talking about what other people did. Stop talking about the, you know, the the fact that other people sent her emails that were or should have been classified, and I just responded to them. Just end all of that. Just say, yes, I was wrong. Yes, I accept the FBI's conclusions. Yes, I will do things yes uh, differently. And yes, if I am president, I will insist that the State Department and every other department of the federal government handle uh, information in ways that are transparent and uh, in accordance with the law and and um, and government regulation period why can't she do that I there is just something endemic <laughs> you know it, it, it's as if there is something endemic in the the, the Clinton DNA that says that you know you can't that 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 you can't just be humble and say I screwed up and I'm sorry and I won't do it again um, and we're going to hold I'm going to hold myself to a higher standard and I'm going to invite the American public to hold me to a higher standard from this point forward. Uh, repentance and forgiveness is a core value. You know, and it's 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 a very cleansing thing if you allow that to happen. Well, I hope you have an inside line to her and can communicate that to her in a more forceful way than anybody else has thus far. Um, in the meantime, though, uh, it is a campaign of lesser evils. I know that Jill Stein is out there. I know that uh, there's the libertarian candidates, Johnson and Welt, um, the libertarians are really, I mean, they get credit for, like, being decriminalizing pot and things like that. But on, a, on the economic front, the libertarians are absolutely awful. They are so awful. Uh, they are beyond belief. Well, so, yeah, I mean, uh, imagine Paul Ryan on steroids. Oh, God, yes. And Paul Ryan is going to Anacostia, right, in... Uh, uh, is it southeast Washington uh, yeah. to talk to poor people and 
uh, everything in his little bag of tricks is to screw uh, poor people even worse than they've been screwed thus far. Well, that, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, Anacostia, uh, I grew up near uh, Anacostia, and so I, I know what that community is and what it's gone through and why it's gone through what it's gone through. And, um, you know, Ryan says that, well, people need to work. And, I'm, you know, I would say, yeah, I'm fine with that. People need to work. Where is the government support for investment in communities like Anacostia that need jobs, that need investment? I mean, we, you know, Anacostia had a red line around it, just like, as I'm sure there, 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 are, there, there are neighborhoods all over the country that have had disinvestment lines around them for decades. Um, Government uh, needs to be a very forceful partner in uh, encouraging uh, development. And their answer is, okay, well, we'll give folks tax breaks. <laughs> and we know what has happened. I, I remember back the, uh, I'll be very quick, Enterprise Zones back in the 1980s, uh, back when Jack Kemp was the um voice of compassion and conservatism uh, in the Reagan administration. And he was going around talking about enterprise zones. Um, well, we kind of and got a lot of support from uh, liberal black mayors for that approach because, you know, they were grasping for anything. You know, um, uh, they had nothing. So if the idea is if... Uh, you give some uh, corporation a tax break, and they'll come into the community, and they'll create jobs, and those tax breaks will pay for themselves. Then that sounds like a win-win. Most of that stuff did not work, and uh, because you also, even when the investment came in, you also needed uh, social services. You needed. To, you needed investment in the schools, you needed investment in the infrastructure, uh, you need all of this other stuff to surround that, none of which happened. And it's not happening now, it definitely would not happen uh, in a future Republican administration with the set of Republicans that we have now, because if you look at the budgets that are currently going through the House and the Senate, you know, the general, uh, uh, you know, most of these programs will take very severe cuts. And if Paul Ryan has his way, you know, what you'll get is a bunch of government programs consolidated into block grants, sent out to the states, where the states, under Republican governors, could cut even further. I mean, one of the things, uh, I'll be, I'm, I know I'm, I'm, I'm running, I'm, I'm talking a lot, but... The thing, one of the things that makes me real angry about the poverty program that Paul Ryan has proposed is that he has actually suggested that states be allowed to create waiting lists for Medicaid. So you have a fixed uh, amount of money for Medicaid that the state has. And if the state is maxed out on that allotment, you get put on a waiting list. Imagine that if you you're, you're, you need a kidney dialysis and you don't have uh, the job of the insurance to cover that. You have to be on a waiting list. 
Well, uh, no, he, you know, he puts on this sort of um, choir boy, uh, earnest, concerned look on his face, and people think that they're not being screwed. But if you read what he's actually advocating, um, food stamps would be, again, uh, at the discretion of governors so that, in fact, the one program that does provide something for poor people could be slashed by Republican governors with with abandoned. Right. Okay. And you would have to, and recipients would have to provide what is in essence slave labor in order to get those food stamps. You'd have to work um, you'd have to work to qualify for the food stamps. Exactly. Yeah. Well, on that fabulously uplifting note, I think we're going to go to our listeners who are waiting patiently to get in on this conversation. Again, my guest is Isaiah Poole. He's Director of Online Communications for the Campaign for America's Future in Washington, D.C. He's editor of OurFuture.org. The phones are full right now, but they will clear, well, they will clear up soon. Um, the phone number is 1-800-958-9008, 1-800-958-9008. Up first is Wendy in Berkeley. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning. Um, perhaps my comment has to, it pertains more to what you were discussing earlier, but I just would like to uh, comment among many other, many other things that can... Um, Many of the conditions that kind of erupted, you know, during this week that, you know, that contributed to it. I just want to say that I just can't help noticing, and it's just so difficult that, um, you know, in, in this country we have, uh, um, I think the individualism that I have is so much exacerbated, especially recently as it gets more and more so. The uh, fear, which are based on prejudices, they go together. We have prejudice based on fear. And the prejudices we have, especially in this country and many places around the world probably now, is related to race. It's We all have it. It exists. But now, more and more, maybe not more and more, maybe it's always been there, but this is what I'm saying, is that it's now people have a license. Like, they, you know, their fear is a license to kill, a license to hurt. And they use their prejudice, and they have no problem with it. They no longer, so many people no longer feel they have um, any requirement to consider what the effects are. They don't even think about it, what the effects are on other people. They have a license to kill. They have a license to hate, a license to make decisions that hurt other people because they're taking care of themselves primarily. And it's just so painful to watch. So I just wanted to contribute that. Okay, Wendy. Uh, Isaiah? That is so true. Um, we have lost uh, or are losing our sense of community. And it's it's an ironic loss because I remember the, the language in the 1980s from conservatives about the me generation um, and that being a bad thing. Well, we have more of a me generation than ever, and it is driven by this ideology which says that we that are, are we are not a collective we are not a community that you know we are an individual we are individuals who are responsible for ourselves and we have to protect ourselves against uh the things that would make us accountable to each other um it's a horrible thing and i think we need 
to, as progressives, talk about the values of community, the values of lifting each other up and holding each other up. Uh, that's it's not just policy. It's 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 also that just that fundamental value of interdependence um, that that is essential. The kinds of things that people like Martin Luther King talked about as being, you know, necessary for us to have the kind of world that we want. Let's go to our next caller. Up next is Don in Berkeley. Good morning, Don. Yes, good morning, Philip. Um, a couple of things. Uh, I wanted to first mention a film that's going to be coming out later this year called The Long Shadow that people can learn about uh, by going to the Facebook page. It is about slavery, the legacy of slavery, white supremacy, and the role of the South in shaping the politics of the country from the inception to the present. Um, When's that going to come out? It'll be coming out sometime in the fall. Okay. It's currently being edited right here in Berkeley. Okay. Uh, so that's point number one. Point number two is um, the whole issue of the police uh, having hair triggers. We should take into account that many of the police, I don't know their exact percentages, have been recruited from people who were in the military recently. Now, people in the military are trained to kill. When you become a police officer, you're ostensibly trained to maintain the peace. So those roles and those trainings are very different, and I think are resulting in horrific outcomes, which is not to say that uh, brutality and killings of black people by white police officers have not gone on for centuries, which is one of the points in the film. The third thing I think I want to say is that we really need to have we need to begin to have an honest conversation about the history of racism in this country, and we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, quite frankly, and I would love Obama to do that <laughs> if he were so willing. Uh, and the last point is yesterday's platform committee of the Democratic National Committee voting against, voting to, uh, to in, leave in place support for the TPP is kind of a handing Trump a possible victory in the election. How does Hillary run against that point on the platform? Well, Hillary was in favor of that point in the platform. Her people were. Uh, exactly. So, so I think the Democrats have just put themselves in a serious trap. Okay. Uh, Isaiah. Um, well, responding, first of all, to uh, what the caller uh, said uh, earlier, uh, what stood out to me was the need for sort of a reconciliation commission. I take it that the caller was thinking of what happened in South Africa after the apartheid regime was taken down, was dismantled. And there was a thorough uh, discussion at, at, at the highest levels of government. There was a national conversation about the consequences of apartheid and what was necessary to to amend um, uh, the damage that had been done uh, by that. Um, by no means were those issues all resolved. South Africa remains in many respects a troubled country, but it certainly built some bridges that have yet to be built here in this country in, uh, in, a, in a sort of deliberate way. Um, 
just a quick comment. I was appalled uh, by what the Democratic Party Platform Committee uh, did on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You have this really asynchronous um, situation now where uh, Hillary Clinton will say that she opposes the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The platform says that there will not be a trade, there should not be a trade deal that does all of these bad things, like have create corporate courts by which corporations can sue government over, over governments over public interest regulations that, that protect consumers but might harm profits of the corporations. Um, and yet, allow for the possibility of Democrats then in a lame duck section of Congress voting this into law anyway, uh, because the Obama administration is, is pushing for it. I, I think that's going to that's going to be that's horrible politics. Number one, uh, and it's probably going to end up being a floor fight at the convention. I'm I'm monitoring that now to see if that actually happens. Well, uh, beyond the election. <clears throat> Um, there is a lame duck session of Congress. Uh, these trade deals are the traditional uh, bailiwick of Republicans, though in modern times, well, since NAFTA, Democrats have signed on too. So uh, is it a foregone conclusion that whoever is elected president in November uh, come the lame duck session, uh, TPP is going to have the uh, the skids greased? Uh, it's not a foregone conclusion. Uh, there are reasons that Republicans oppose this agreement. Uh, uh, in some cases, because they think it's it's too strong, um, and there are Democrats who oppose it because they think it's too weak. And there are, you know, so I, you know, the the politics um, would seem to argue. If you look at it on the surface, the politics would seem to argue that a that this uh, treaty would not come up in a lame duck vote. The problem is that the Obama administration is pushing for it so hard and has as its allies people like the Chamber of Commerce, uh, some uh, of the uh, some other uh, segments of the business community, and uh, the traditional free trade caucus in both political parties are in influential positions. So, uh, you know, and I would not discount uh, the fact that there are some African-American legislators uh, in the House who don't want to be the ones who would deny President Obama uh, a victory on something that he wants this much, even though they may have political problems with it. Okay. Let's go to our next caller. Uh, Jeff is on the line from Berkeley. Good morning, Jeff. Hello. Hello. Philip, uh, nice to hear your voice. I usually see you at the gym, and I've been listening to you for 30 or 40 years. I just wanted to point something out about community policing that came up when I first came to California in about 1965 or 66, one of the police officers' unions down the peninsula filed a suit saying that policemen did not have to live in the communities that they were working in. 
and I don't know how how thrilled I am about the Constitution anymore, but um, I just think it's interesting that uh, that might be might be a place to, to move in terms of. Uh, changing the way the police relate to the community. If they were living in the community, they might have more respect for it. Uh, Isaiah, do you want to come in? Oh, I totally agree. Uh, you know, the police unions, by the way, have not been our friends on this. Uh, let's just make that clear. Uh, and I wish that some of our other union allies uh, that have been working you know, with the African-American community have been lockstep with us on a lot of other issues would be a little, would be a little bit more forceful and saying, look, um, we know that a union's job, uh, a police union's job, is to defend the interests of police officers. But let's not forget that the fundamental obligation of a, the police works for the community. It works for all of us, and a union, therefore has to work for us as well. And, you know, when we're talking about fundamental issues of justice, fundamental issues that get to the heart of what a police officer is paid to do, um, you know, the, the union should not be working against the community, period. Um and that that the issue of 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 officers living in the communities that they that they police in, you know that is an issue. Now, now it's true that we don't pay police officers. I'm sure in Berkeley, you know, um, uh, most police officers could not afford to live in in a lot of the neighborhoods uh, in the Bay Area. That's a huge problem, and so we got to get at issues of housing affordability, et cetera. Uh, but in terms of um, making sure that we have those bonds between community and police, nothing should be interfering with that. Well, I'm glad you brought up the affordability question. There are so many communities that have just been priced out of range of not just police officers, but certainly school teachers. Um, I was talking to the... Uh, what is she, assessor, appraiser uh, uh, here in Berkeley? And I, I asked her, well, who was going to succeed her? And she said, well, a lot of people in the office would be great, but they don't live in Berkeley. They can't afford to live in Berkeley. Well, so, there you go. <laughs> so you can't run for a city office if you don't live in the town. Uh, let's go to our next caller. Um, uh, up next is Carlos in El Cerrito. Good morning, Carlos. Uh, good morning, Philip. Thank you. As usual, a very good program. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to try to be brief. Uh, I'm going to expand a definition of, and this has to do with politics and violence. Um, and I know some people may not agree, but uh, maybe because I was born and raised outside the U.S., but my definition of violence, when, when I see a society, that doesn't protect all its citizens uh, on health care, where there are so many people homeless and we don't seem to care and they're camping just right next to us and they are, I, you know, um, when we are, when, when the ratio of salaries top to bottom is 400 to 1, when we don't uh, cover in education, college, all kids, I mean, to me, this is all tremendous level of violence. And unfortunately, we don't seem to have statistics, but I bet you that there would be much higher number of people dying from that kind of violence 
than from regular, what we call violence every day. So I think what I'm saying is, I think that that message permeates to society. There is a level of numbness, and we don't care about the life of others. And from what your guest said and what you said about Paul Ryan, if we keep moving in that direction, the level of violence in the U.S., I'm afraid, I'm very afraid that will increase so much. And people need to start think, um, asking the question, why does, doesn't those shootings happen in Finland, in New Zealand, in Peru, in, I don't know, Italy? Why, why don't they happen there? And why do they happen here? And, and I, to me, it has to do with this level of violence I'm referring to. Would like to see what your guests have to. Um, and well, I'm not well, there was a crazy mass killing in Sweden not that long ago. So, I mean, there are <clears throat> there are a few. Yeah, there are right. crazy people. Yeah, um, with guns. Of course, okay. everywhere it yeah. seems. Unfortunately, that, okay. that's true. Okay, Isaiah, do you want to come in? But there is such a thing as economic violence. And I think that was, that's the insight that that caller brings uh, to this conversation. And uh, there have been countless studies that have been done about what poverty, uh, the stress of working at a low-wage job that does not allow you to make ends meet, the violence that that does to an individual psyche, uh, to their emotional well-being, and actually to their physical well-being, um, it, it, it is quite striking. Um, and in fact, if you look at what we talked about earlier about the opioid abuse in some of these poor white communities, a lot of what we're seeing there is a consequence of the economic violence done against uh, poor people, low-income people. Uh, the uh, when we don't allow uh, people to find work that enables them to uh, support their families, etc. Um, it's having a, it's having. There are devastating consequences, and it's right for us to, I think, uh, begin to think of it in that way. Let's go to Doug in Berkeley. A lot of Berkeley calls today. Uh, Doug, you're up next. Yes, good morning. Your listeners need to know that the Campaign for America's Future is a Democratic Party-affiliated think tank that masquerades as a nonpartisan think tank. And I wish that kind of thing would be pointed out more often on KPSA because you very often have people on who have masked allegiances. Your guest today was very venomous in his attacks on Republicans and very, very forgiving to Hillary Clinton and some other Democrats. For example, he seemed to suggest that all Hillary has to do is apologize for her very serious transgressions and lying for months about her emails and mishandling secrets. All she has to do is apologize. I don't think that that is an appropriate response, especially given how serious these issues are, the fact that she's running for president when she would have been fired if she was a State Department employee for what she did. She would have lost her security clearances, and yet she's allowed to run for president, something serious 
is wrong about the fact that she's even still a candidate. Okay, and I would like her. I would like her uh, behavior and ability to get off the hook to be examined further by your guests. Okay, Doug, you've, you're, you, we got your point. Isaiah, do you want to comment? Um, no, except to correct the record that, that uh, no, Campaign for America's Future is not at all affiliated with the Democratic Party, and anyone who uh, has read what we've published over the years uh, would realize that we have been frequently quite antagonistic toward elements of the Democratic establishment, and vice versa. Well, and also... Uh, come on, folks. I think Bernie said it best. Not the end-all, be-all issue. I think the issues that Bernie brought up that are uh, obviously um, very critical of Hillary is war and peace issues. Is she really a hawk? Is she prepared to send troops anywhere, anywhere, any any time? Uh, is she uh, a friend of Wall Street? Those are real issues. I think the email thing is like way down the list let's go to david in sausalito good morning david hello hello philip can you hear me yes i can um i wanted to make a comment um i really appreciate this program and thank you and your guest for being on i wanted to make a comment uh, and it's kind of a question we heard in uh the, the police shootings we heard this this uh, one uh, response that I had never heard in, in, in my life. I'm 59 years old. I never heard this uh, uh, come out in any kind of consistency before. That these people were always going for the officer's gun, and I'm wondering if this doesn't speak to some kind of training that's going on. Uh, behind the scenes that the officers are getting sort of riot training or David uh, I didn't realize we're so short on time let's let's ask uh, Ishmael uh, Isaiah the the question that uh, he was going for my gun therefore I shot him Um, the problem is that uh, in some cases that clearly was not the case and the video shows that Uh, in the case of the, the, the the situation in Baton Rouge the the person was on the ground, subdued, and they shot him point blank. I mean, they literally appears from the video, pointed the gun in his body and pumped bullets into it. Um, the St. Paul, no evidence has surfaced of anyone, re, uh, the driver, reaching either for his gun, which he very openly said he had one, or for the officer's gun. Okay. We've got to go. Isaiah Poole, uh, you can read what he says and what others say at ourfuture.org. He's Director of Online Communication for Campaign for America's Future. Isaiah, I really appreciate you spending part of your Sunday yeah, with us. It was really enjoyable uh, uh, talking to you and to the callers. Okay. And thank all of you for listening and joining us here on the Sunday show today. I'll be back next week as usual from 9 to 11. I'm Philip Muldery. Many thanks to Mickey Mays at the Control doing a great job today and Tuesday tune for across the great divide